Psalm 34. This is a psalm that's written by David. It's said to have been written when he was pretending to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. The psalm reads, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Thanks, Gabe. I appreciate that. Well, good morning. Uh, Thanks for... uh being here with us this morning on this beautiful day. This is a, a really fun day. It's a really exciting day. See what God has in store with this possible merger, but also seeing what God has in store for us through Psalm 34 um, today. And so we're excited to see what the Holy Spirit does, what he teaches us, what how he illuminates his word in our hearts today. Um, and so this is our second summer of psalms, if you will, and also our last, probably. And so uh, today we're going to be going through, obviously, Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 is a a really beautiful picture of what the characteristics of living a redeemed life looks like. Uh, Again, David is the author of this, and he constructs this beautifully, beautifully written psalm. Now, this psalm is, is interesting because it's also an acrostic, uh, meaning each verse in this psalm uh, begins with a success, uh, successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there's not many psalms that are written this way. In fact, there's only seven in the whole book of 150 psalms that are written this way as an acrostic. So, you know, I love uh, historical context, uh, context and background in biblical studies and stuff like that. So let's talk a little bit about this background and, and context of this psalm. Now, David is nice enough to kind of give us a hint on where we can tie this back to. So in your Bible, in the description of Psalm 34, it may say something along the lines of, you know, David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, this is a really good historical hint as to where this 
psalm ties back to in the Old Testament. So this actually ties back to 1 Samuel 21. Now, we have in the past gone through the books of First and Second Samuel. How many of you were around when TG Dub went through First and Second Samuel? I'll give you a hint. If you were around, if you were around back in 2012-ish, 2013, that's when we went through the books of First and Second Samuel. Um, so I, I kind of want to quickly go back to First Samuel 21 and uh, read a couple verses on what's happening. Um, right before David writes this psalm, Psalm 34. So if we go to 1 Samuel, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead. If you don't um, have your Bibles, you can just listen as I read these couple of verses. But 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 to 15. David flees to Gath. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ashish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Ashish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Ashish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard." Then Ashish said this to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, um, if you've kind of been around the last couple of years as we've gone through different books of the Old Testament, you've probably heard me say that I love the Old Testament. And one of the main reasons why I love the Old Testament is because it is full of crazy stories. You think back as we went through Exodus and the crazy stories that we heard uh, the people of Israel go through in that book. And here you have another crazy story. Here you have this King David. Now I do air quotes because... He's not the king, but God has chosen him as king. He's been anointed by Samuel, and yet Saul is still on the throne. So needless to say, Saul and David's relationship is not a great one right now. And and so what's happening is he's running and he's fleeing for his life uh, from Saul. And so David flees to Gath, where Ashish, or uh, in Psalm 34, he calls him Abimelech, um, both the same guy, um, where he's king. And so he's going to try to blend in and and kind of hire himself out as a mercenary. Uh, But at this point in his life, he's pretty famous. Uh, He killed Goliath. That was a big deal. Uh, He's killed thousands and thousands of men. They've written songs about him. And so it doesn't really take very long before he's recognized by these people in Gath. And and, and so the the, the men that are around him say, wait a second, isn't this, this is the king of the land. Um, And and they sing songs about him, about how great of a warrior he is and how many people he's killed. So let's take this guy. Let's use him as as ransom. Let's let's kill him. And and so David starts to get freaked out, and he's filled with this fear that Abimelech is going to kill him. And so he does something crazy. Now, literally... He acts crazy. He acts insane. He, he changes his personality, and, and he pretends to be insane. 
And so he starts making marks on the gate and, and acting crazy. And he lets the spit go down his face and, and in his beard. And the king's like, I have enough madmen in my presence. Why, why in the world would you bring this guy to be part of my court? And so um, they take him away, and, and David flees again, and, and he gets um, out of Gath, and, and his life is spared by God in this whole uh, situation. So that's the context, and that's the, the mindset and the experience and the time that David is writing this psalm, Psalm 34. So keep that in mind as we work through this text today, um, so uh, as we go through Psalm 34. Now, in Psalm 34, there's a certain question that David is addressing in this psalm. And the question that we're faced with today is, what does it look like to live a redeemed life? And I think from this psalm, Psalm 34, David gives us three characteristics of what a redeemed life looks like. A redeemed life, a redeemed life is characterized by worship of God. It's characterized by repentance, and it's characterized by eternal hope. So let's dive into our text today. Now, I love what David is telling us in this psalm. And for us, it's extremely applicable because of the world and the culture and the context that we live in today. There's a little bit of, of contrast between what the world teaches us about this text and what God is teaching us from this text. Because the world teaches us that it's okay and that we should worship ourselves. It's okay for me to be the center of the universe. It's okay for me to make much of myself. It's, it's okay for me um, to make sure that everything else revolves around me. The world tells us that each of us are our own moral standard. That I am morally superior than everyone else. It's okay for me to express my frustration and my judgment because no one else is as good as me. The world also tells us that we should seek temporary comfort. Whatever will make us happy now whatever health and whatever wealth and and whatever prosperity and whatever comfort we can get, you name it, you claim it, that is what the world teaches us. But what David is telling us through this psalm is that if we're living a redeemed life, we need to be worshiping God, not ourselves. We need to be repenting of our shortcomings and our failures and looking to Jesus as the moral standard, not ourselves. We need to be placing our trust in in our hope, in the eternal hope that we have through Jesus Christ, not the temporary comfort in earth. So let's explore these characteristics a little bit. First, again, the life of the redeemed is characterized by the worship of God, not self. So check out these, these first three verses here in Psalm 34. If you look at them, every phrase of these first three verses drips with the worship of God. Nowhere in any of these first three verses do you even get the slightest hint of worship of self. Look what he says. He says, I will bless who? The Lord. His praise shall be in my mouth. My soul boasts in what? The Lord. Magnify who? The Lord. Exalt whose name? His, meaning God. 
So nowhere in those verses is David promoting himself or, or looking to himself or building himself up or making much of himself. Now, it probably would have been easy for him to, right? I mean, he's, he's pretty famous. He's the, the chosen and the anointed king of Israel. He, he killed Goliath. He's killed thousands and thousands of enemies. So he, he could have built himself up. He could have made much of himself, yet he's worshiping God. In fact, he tells us to magnify God. Now, that's an interesting word. Not a word you see much in the Bible. In fact, if you count up all the times that the word magnified is used in the ESV, it's only 15 times in the whole Bible, which is pretty crazy. So when you see a word like that that is not really used very much, cause us to pause for a second. So let's kind of think about what that, what that word means. So magnify means to make big, to make great, to show off excellencies, to show off beauty. Now, when Laura and I uh, started to get serious in, in our dating, um, <clears throat> I started the very nerve-wracking process of looking at diamonds and looking at rings, right? That's natural. I don't really get stressed out very much. I'm very this way. Um, the two things that have stressed me out most in my entire life have been, one, buying a house, and two, buying a diamond ring. Uh, so when I started looking for a diamond for Laura, I, I did a lot of research, a lot of buying online. And so I spent hours and hours and hours researching color and brilliance and cut and inclusions and clarity and, and all that stuff that goes into buying a diamond. Because you see a really big diamond and it's cheap and you're like, hmm, why is this diamond cheap? Um, so you start to realize there's a lot that goes into buying diamonds. And so did a lot of, of, of research online. And, and then when Laura and I were together, we would go into ring shops and, and look at rings and stuff. And what do they do, right? You, you say, oh, let's look at that one. And, and they pull out the diamond or they pull out the ring and they give you this magnifying glass. And you look at it under the magnifying glass and it looks beautiful. The color is awesome. It's massive. And then when you pull away, the magnifying glass is like really small, and you're like, oh. No, but you look under the magnifying glass, and it's beautiful. It's this big diamond, and it's, it's just crazy. And you're like, whoa, I need that diamond. It's, it's beautiful. I, I want that. And that's what David is talking about and what he's saying that we need to be doing with God here in, in Psalm 34. We need to be making much of him. We need to be magnifying him. We need to be showing how big and, and how beautiful and how perfect he is. But because we're human and because we're sinful, we'd rather magnify ourselves than God. We live in a world where there's fascination about everything about ourselves that magnifies ourselves. We, we tend to boast in our uniqueness. We boast in our differentness or our, our weirdness or our quirkiness. And you look at all the different personality tests that are out there, and they, they show you how different and how unique you are. Look at social media. How many of your timelines are filled with selfies of that specific person? Or these beautiful pictures of people's lives? Okay, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that selfies... Are bad. I'm not saying uh, pictures of your family or your house are bad, and, and I'm not saying personality tests and, and things like that are wrong. 
In fact, if you know me, I, I actually really love personality tests. It's a weird thing. I like to take all those tests that come across my timeline. Like, what Star Wars character are you? Or what Harry Potter house are you in? And things like that. So I'm not saying that you know, social media is wrong, selfies are wrong, or personality tests are wrong, or, or anything like that. I'm just pointing out that we, we live in a world that magnifies and, and that tells us to make much of ourselves. But when we look at Scripture, all throughout Scripture, we don't see that mindset. In fact, the Bible almost never highlights the uniqueness of a specific person. It always highlights the uniqueness of God. So Scripture goes into great lengths to point out really how similar we as humans are. We're all dead in our sins, right? We're all sinners. We're all hopeless unless we have Jesus. And so we really have to be careful to combat that type of thinking that infiltrates our lives each and every day. That life is all about me. Because this thinking, this vein of thought is beginning to infiltrate our churches and in Christian circles more and more. So let's not be a, a people that care more about what God says we are, but care more about what God says about himself. See, culture today views ourselves as the center of meaning, um, that the world revolves around us. But guess what? The world doesn't revolve around me. The world doesn't revolve around you. Now, if, you've ha- if you have a kid, you've, you've probably said that once or twice. I've had that said to me a couple times in my lifetime. I've also been saying that quite a bit to Scout nowadays. Um, and she's probably going to hear it a lot more come February. Uh, she's going to be in for a uh, rude awakening for sure. Uh, it's a lot of fun times. So. But the world does not revolve around us. I came across this quote that I really liked as I was studying this week. It says, Christianity is not a religion that focuses on the self. Christianity is a religion that focuses on the triune God and his acts on our behalf. Now, John Calvin actually talks about this topic in his book, Institutes of Christian Religion. He talks about what it takes to be a wise person. He says, pursue two types of wisdom. The first being the knowledge of God, and the second being the knowledge of self. Now, it's easy to hear that or or read that and say, yeah, of course, I need to know God and I need to know myself. But that's not really what Calvin is saying, because if you read further on in that book, he says, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. So he's not saying there's two things to pursue, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. They're not comparative. They're contrasting. So back to the magnifying the Lord with me statement that David says in verse 3. What Calvin and David are saying is that God is the diamond. We're the backdrop that the diamond sits on, right? We are meant to magnify the diamond, not ourselves. Our self-identity isn't worthy of worship. God is the one that is. Because look at what the psalmist keeps saying in in the next couple of verses here. 
He says, I sought the Lord. Those who look to him. The Lord hears. The Lord delivers. All of these verses are about God. And then in verse 8, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Again, it's all about God. And David pleads once again to his listeners, Taste, see that the Lord is good. Not that I am good. He's not saying, taste and see how good I am or how awesome I am. That's not what he's saying at all. It's not about you. It's not about me. So if you're looking to yourself or if you're looking to someone else human to satisfy your longings and your desires, you're never going to find it. They're always going to fail you. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a religion of self-denial. Jesus taught this all throughout the New Testament. He said, whoever wants to come to me, deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. But we live in a world that believes the exact opposite, that teaches the exact opposite. And unfortunately, it is. It's, it's infiltrating and it's leaking into the Christian circles that we live in. Because it's easy for us as pastors to stand up here and say, and preach and teach that if you have just enough faith or if you pray just enough or if you read your Bible just enough, then God is going to bless you and you're going to have a great life. It's easy to preach that, but that's not what the Bible says. That's a self-promoting type of gospel. That's not how Christianity works. It's not, it's not about us. What the biblical gospel is, is about a God that sent his only son to die for a world of sinners. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that's what we have to fully realize. That the problem is internal. It's, it's our hearts. It's, it's who we are. We are sinful. The problem isn't external. The solution, however, is external. And that is Jesus and Jesus' death on the cross for us. That is what the solution is. And that's what David's saying here in Psalm 34. Taste and see that God is good. Now the second characteristic of a redeemed life is repentance. And David says in, in verse 11 there, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. Now for me, the fear of the Lord has kind of been one of those somewhat ambiguous topics, if you will. And so I want to try to explain this in terms that we can all kind of try to grasp together. Uh, because it, it can kind of be confusing, the fear of the Lord. What, what does that mean? Why, why should I fear the Lord? But I think David paints a really beautiful picture of the fear of God here in Psalm 34. He talks about the fear of God a lot, actually. He mentioned it in verse 7. He mentioned it in verse uh, 9. And then he says it here again in verse 11. He says, listen, I will teach you how to fear the Lord. Now, Martin Luther does a really good job of explaining uh, the two types of fears that we typically see in the Bible. Um, He distinguishes between them what he calls a servile fear and a filial fear. So a servile fear is a kind of fear that a prisoner in a torture chamber has for his tormentor that's coming in, right? Or another way to describe it could be 
Um, this dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened by the clear and present danger that is represented by another person. Or it's the kind of fear that a slave would have at the hands of a malicious uh, master who comes in with a whip ready to beat him and, and torment him. So servile fear refers to a posture of servitude towards a malicious owner. So that's servile fear. Luther distinguished between servile fear and what he called filial fear, and that's drawing from that Latin concept of family. It refers to the fear that a a child has for his father. So in this regard, Luther was thinking of, of a child who has this tremendous respect and love for his father or, or mother and who dearly wants to please them with everything that they do. So he has a fear of anxiety for offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or punishment or, or something like that, but rather he's afraid of displeasing them the, the one who is, in this child's world, the source of um, security and love. So that's the difference between servile fear and filial fear. And the fear that David is talking about here in Psalm 34 is that uh, filial fear. The focus is on the sense of awe and respect for the majesty of God with that uh, son or, or daughter and father type fear. There's a sense of reverence. So when we realize and understand our position under God, it should lead us to a life of, of repentance when we fail. Not because we're afraid what God is, is going to give us in, as far as like punishment and, and torture, but because we're sad and, and we, we're afraid of the way that we have failed him. So this is kind of where this second point ties in with the first point. If we're to worship and to look to God for redemption and repentance and not ourselves, then when we are worshiping ourselves or or looking to ourselves for redemption, we're also looking to self as moral authority and moral superiority. Meaning it's super easy to feel like we are morally superior than most people if we are looking to ourselves as that bar, especially in today's world. Just get on social media. Just pull up any news article. It's easy to pick out people that you're better than. We can find all sorts of things to feel morally superior about, to feel morally enraged about, because we ourselves are the standard instead of God. But the moral standard is a right and true and a just God. So when we find ourselves um, as the moral standard, we can be easily frustrated and enraged by those around us that we think should be different. But if God is the moral standard, if God is the bar, then our lives are are different. Our lives are then characterized by humility. They're then characterized by repentance. Because regardless of how good you are, no matter how good I think I am, I don't match up to God's rightness, perfectness, justness. So David asks the question in verse 12 here, what does a life of a redeemed person look like? How can we be characterized by humility and by repentance? 
And he goes on to say, by keeping your tongue from evil, by keeping your lips from lies, by turning from evil, by doing good, by seeking and pursuing peace, by worshiping God and not self, by using him as the bar and the standard for morality. So let us be a people that are marked by humility and repentance, not using our own lives as the moral standard, but looking to the ultimate moral standard, which is God himself. Now, the third characteristic of a redeemed life is eternal hope. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. We have a God that is attentive to our needs. We have a God that listens to us. Now, at first read, this may give off the idea that if I'm righteous enough, then God is going to provide everything that I want in life. But look at what verse 18 and then what verse 19 says. 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, as redeemed children, our hope is to be eternal, not temporary. Because we are going to go through various trials in life. We can take comfort in the fact that God is there with us through them all. But our hope is eternally focused because of what Jesus did. Our hope is not just temporary. It's not just comfort here on earth. Now this is contrary to a false gospel that is making its way throughout Christianity. Called the prosperity gospel. People heard of that? Prosperity gospel is false. It's untrue, it's unbiblical, and it's a gross distortion of what biblical gospel really is. Now, most everyone in here would probably say, yeah, that's correct, Drew. I, I, would, I would believe and I would agree with that statement. But what's scary is that it slowly started to infiltrate teaching going on today in churches. So we have to be really careful and really discerning on what we believe about hope. Because the life of the redeemed is characterized by eternal hope, not by temporary comfort and hope. So no matter how, faith, how much faith you have, you're still going to go through trials. Paul says it, or, uh, Paul, David says it right here. Paul says it in the New Testament. No matter how good you are, bad things are probably going to happen to you at some point. But we have a God that is there with us through them all. So I want to kind of talk about a couple differences between the prosperity gospel and the biblical gospel. Um, and this, these thoughts came from a pastor and a theologian named J.T. English. And I thought they were really good as I, I was studying this week. So I, I, I want to just point these out to us this morning. So the message of the prosperity gospel is that Christ came to alleviate sickness and bring prosperity and health. But what the biblical gospel teaches is that Christ came to alleviate God's wrath towards sin so that you might experience eternal hope. Here's another one. 
The message of the prosperity gospel is that God helps those who help themselves. This is one that I hear quite frequently in counseling with people. But the biblical gospel says that God saves those who could never save themselves. The message of the prosperity gospel is that God will give you more than you need if you place your faith in him. But the biblical gospel teaches that God is all you need. The message of the prosperity gospel is that if you take away my health and wealth, you've taken away everything. But the biblical gospel says that you can take away everything, including my health, including my wealth. But if I have God, I have everything. The last one. The message of the prosperity gospel teaches that God will give but will never take away. Not true at all. The biblical gospel teaches that God will give and will take away, but he will never take away himself. God has not promised us as believers a life that is easy, happy-go-lucky times. That's not how it works, unfortunately. Because life, as most of you know, is tough. Life is rough. It's, it's raw. It doesn't make sense sometimes. It's, it's unbearable at times. It's extremely frustrating at times. I look out and I see all of you today, and I, I see so much pain and so much hurt and so much frustration in your lives. My heart breaks with you in those different trials that you're going through, in those different struggles that you're going through. But what David's saying here is that we, as Christians, we're going to encounter afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, he says in verse 19. But God will bring us through those afflictions. So don't fall prey to the lies of the prosperity gospel. The lies of the, of the prosperity gospel, the lies that it tells, are too low and they're too cowardly. The biblical gospel promises us so much more than that. It, it promises a more intimate, a, a more deep, a more rich relationship with the God of the universe, regardless of what health you have, regardless of what wealth you have, regardless of what prosperity you have here on earth. So remember where David finds himself as he's writing this psalm. He's fleeing for his life. He's not being given what is rightfully his. The, the crown of, of Israel should be his. The, the throne of Israel should be his. And so he, he finds himself by himself on the run, acting like an insane person just to, to, to get away and, and save his life. What does he say? He says, are you brokenhearted? The Lord's near. Are you cast down? Is your spirit crushed? God will deliver. Do you have afflictions? The Lord will bring you through them. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We have a God that has redeemed us from certain death, who sent his own son to die a painful, 
brutal death on the cross for us. Giving us the option for a redeemed life. Giving us the option for eternal hope. We have a God that will see us through every trial he allows into our lives. It doesn't say that he's going to take us out of the trial, but that he's going to be there with us through the trial. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I think that's such a beautiful picture of how life is. God didn't just take them out of that fiery furnace. He, just, he didn't uh, not allow them to go in that fiery furnace, but he was there in the fiery furnace with them. So the true biblical gospel is not about health. It's not about wealth. It's not about prosperity. It's not about temporary comfort. It's so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that. It's about eternal hope in the kingdom of Christ. It's about having our hearts completely and utterly transformed and transferred from darkness to light into the kingdom of God. That is the biblical gospel. That is the gospel we should be preaching to ourselves and believing to ourselves every single day. That's the gospel that we should be sharing with our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors each and every day. That is the true gospel of Christ. So today we've looked at the characteristics of a redeemed life. One that worships God, not self. One that repents, that doesn't view themselves as the moral standard, that views God as the moral standard. One that has eternal hope and not temporary comfort. We've seen the contrast from what David is teaching us through God's word and what the world teaches us today. We're told today that we need to place our trust and our faith inwardly, to self-fulfillment and allow ourselves to be the moral standard. Pursue that temporary comfort and hope. But what David is telling us is to magnify God, to make much of, of God, to allow God to be the focus, to allow God to be the moral standard in our lives, and to rest in the fact that we have an eternal hope as sons and daughters of Christ. So which contrast, here's the question, the takeaway for today. Which contrast are you believing in? One that is biblically founded or one that is self-focused? Let's pray.